I swear to submit to the following set of rules drawn up and confirmed by Dogma 95. Shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. 2. The sound must never be produced apart from the images, or vice versa. Music must not be used unless it occurs where the scene is being shot. 3. The camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. The film must not take place where the camera is standing. Shooting must take place where the film takes place. 4. The film must be in color. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut or a single lamp be attached to the camera. 5. Optical work and filters are forbidden. 6. The film must not contain superficial action. Murders, weapons, etc. must not occur. 7. Temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. That is to say that the film takes place here and now. 8. Genre movies are not acceptable. 9. The film format must be Academy 35mm. 10. The director must not be credited. Furthermore, I swear as a director to refrain from personal taste. I am no longer an artist. I swear to do so by all the means available and at the cost of any good taste and any aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. Hello, 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 and welcome to Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. Hi. And we are going to be doing episode 7. Last week, we decided that we would talk about the film, the Thomas Winterberg 1998 film, Festin. Your pick. My pick, also called The Celebration. Only in the US, I think, right? Yes, that is correct. Festin was the inaugural film of the Dogma 95 movement, and it aimed to reframe the entire filmmaking industry. So, very big ambitions. But before we get into that, we wanted to discuss a letter written by filmmaker Lisandro Alonso to Thierry Frémont that recently found itself in the newest edition of The Cinemascope. We thought we'd read it out loud. Dear Thierry Frémont, I hope this letter finds you had missed a rare moment of clarity, for it is high time that someone shed light on the festering hypocrisy that engulfs the Cannes Film Festival. I write to you today with a heavy heart consumed by the unyielding anger and frustration that stems from the blatant favoritism and insidious tactics employed by your organization. I write this open letter with profound frustration and disappointment over the programming decisions made for this year's con. As a filmmaker who has poured my heart and soul into creating thought-provoking and artistically daring works, I cannot help but express my vehement opposition to the relegation of my film. Eureka to the Cannes Premiere section. It is no secret that Cannes Premiere was previously reserved for films aimed at a popular audience, a platform for commercially viable movies. Last year's inclusion of more popular films was understandable, given the unprecedented circumstances surrounding the pandemic. However, this year's lineup appears to serve a different purpose altogether, to block films from other festivals, regardless of their artistic merit. Eureka is a film that pushes the boundaries of storytelling, challenging conventional narratives, and delving into complex philosophical themes. Its exclusion from the competition not only undermines the artistic integrity of the film, but also sends a disheartening message to filmmakers who strive to create cinema that transcends the mundane. By relegating Eureka to Cannes Premier, you effectively devalue its artistic significance and limit its exposure to a discerning and appreciative audience. 
This decision is a blatant insult to the countless hours of dedication and artistry poured into its creation. It is a betrayal of the very essence of cinema. Similarly, Victor Eris's Close Your Eyes is a work of profound beauty and emotional resonance. Eris is a masterful filmmaker whose artistry has captivated audiences around the world. It is an insult to his immense talent and the legacy of his previous works to confine Close Your Eyes to a section that seems more concerned with appeasing commercial interests than celebrating true cinematic achievements. By using Cannes Première as a means to block films from other festivals, you are hindering the progress of cinema as an art form. Cannes has long been regarded as a platform for artistic innovation and discovery, a place where groundbreaking films and visionary directors find their audience. To betray this legacy in favor of protecting territorial interests is a disservice to filmmakers and the audience alike. Yours sincerely, Lisandro Alonso. So, Eliana, having just voiced that strong opinion of Alonso, what did you think about that when you read that first? Well, I think that he was definitely very upset and probably rightfully so. We both saw his film, Eureka, at Cannes, and it was to our liking. I think of this letter as a warning in a way to filmmakers in the industry now and a call for the prestigious film festival to perhaps rethink their programming because they don't want to lose filmmakers who have previously, who just show interest in being at Cannes. There seems to be a great disparity between their representation or the perceived representation and, I guess, respect that the filmmakers have and the commercialized uh, avenues that the film festival also takes. Yeah, and we will see how consequential this really will play out, right? Because uh, on the one hand, there is Alonso criticizing this, and I also think rightly so. I I think one can make the strong case that this Cannes Premier section isn't, you know, that doesn't really have a strong focus when you compare it, especially to other festivals like in Berlin, where you have clear sections like the panorama and the forum sections for once. And with Cannes, it seems really, as he says, uh, you know, take as many mm. known and established filmmakers as possible and somehow fit them into the festival. And then you have films mm -hmm. that are consensually deemed not very good, but they are in competition. And we all know that there are reasons for that that are rather personal than merited of course a highly subjective topic in general but um definitely interesting to see how if at all the festival might go forward i don't know if Thierry Fremont will ever address this and i think this is actually a welcome a welcome moment for us to bet you know i'm i'm a fan <laughs> of betting do you think Thierry Fremont will ever address this letter I think that there are probably, and you won't like the way that I answer this, I think there probably could be changes in the programming. I don't even know. So an indirect response. This is an indirect response, yes. How, how I think that he will address it, yeah. I see. Well, that perhaps would make another, it to the better, no? Yeah, perhaps another prize will be invented. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I really... I mm. Another section for... Another section. Nani Moretti and uh, Sean Penn. Oh my... <laughs> well, anyway, so this is our little digression here and we go back to our film of the day. And I think this will give us opportunity enough to talk uh, for hours possibly, but we won't go thus far. 
But yeah, so Festin, Eliana, I think it's impossible to discuss this film without talking a bit about the dogma movement itself. Absolutely impossible. In 1995, March, Paris. Should be in a different order, but you get what I mean. What happened back then? What happened back then? Let's see. We're in the Odeon. We're in Paris. And we have the 100th anniversary of the Lumiere Brothers' first film and screening. Basically just the 100th anniversary, anniversary of, of cinema. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's debatable, I suppose, whether they were the first of the firsts. Of However, course. of course, it's their film. It's We're in Paris. Everyone's happy. Everyone's wondering whether cinema will be alive for the upcoming 100 years. And Lars von Trier and Thomas Winterberg, along with two other Danish filmmakers at the time, Søren Krag Jakobsen and Christian Levering, took it upon themselves, allegedly one week before, to write a set of rules, a set of rules which have now become the vow of chastity that we recited earlier together, in order to aim towards getting a purer version of cinema. They were very disillusioned with the fact that cinema was aiming to deceive, aiming to fool people, was, was not something that was easily accessible to filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers, and they were not happy with the way that aesthetics had... How they had really established, right? And how they had sort of forcing a frame on their work. And uh, it's quite interesting to see how, you know, there's this documentary that we both watched by Jesper Jagel in 2003, where the four main figures of the movement looked back at their first works. And Lars von Trier in particular, he seems, he always seems to be the one that is most concerned with the theory of it all. You know, he wants to conceptualize filmmaking and he you can feel that he basically lives cinema and uh, he thinks about it 24 7 and he says that for him a very important aspect of the movement was to lose control mm. uh, because as a director I mean it seems so intuitive right you you have all the control you can control the camera you can control the actors you control everything you control the editing later as well and uh, this is really, yeah, that's a counterintuitive thing to me. And that's, I guess there's also this idea, right, in cinema that in terms of form, you always look for a new form. And once you find it, and if it is just repeated enough and enough, it becomes the new standard. And then it doesn't have this effect on you anymore. And I think you can really only think these periods as periods. You know, there is not this one movement that then let's evaporate all the others. No, there is a continuity, there's a flow, a fluctuation, and it only lasts for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe, I mean, people, when they write about Dogma 95, they talk about the fact that it was highly inspired by the French New Wave. They call Dogma 95 essentially the Danish Nouvelle Vague. We also have the idea of digital filmmaking that was sort of born out of this, even though one of the rules that we recited earlier was that it should be the Academy standard of 35 millimeters. This is somewhat confusing because then we have the first dogma film, mm -hmm. Destin, being on a... Do you... 
Yeah, it's an on a, on a Sony. relatively cheap Sony mm -hmm. camcorder, I think. And we have behind the scenes footage where we can see how small this camera really is. Yeah, it's extremely small. And I do think that the 35 millimeters was not to reference being on celluloid film, but rather about the aspect ratio. So nowadays, the aspect ratio of a film might be three to two, not necessarily, or even larger. But then it was four to three aspect ratio, which was the old Academy 35 millimeter version. But I really think it was also about capturing, uh, you know, on film what happened because the words that you will always find when you look up dogma is mm. uh, unveiling the truth, right? Unveiling the truth of the characters, unveiling the truth of the story. And of course, when you capture something really on film that is different to uh, digital. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as you pointed out, and I think rightfully so, this was a time of huge transition for the entire industry. The 90s really marked the development or the progress more and more from analog filmmaking to digital filmmaking. And fascinating actually in that respect, it's not only when it comes to Dogma 95, it's also when it comes to digital filmmaking. It's really in, incisive, the turning point uh, in that respect. I looked it up online and only you know a few months before the film started in Cannes in 1998, um, There was this American horror film that no one mm. remembers anymore these days. It's called The Last Broadcast by Stefan Avalos and Lance Whaler. And that premiered at a local theater in, oh, in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, mm. I've, I don't know if I've heard of that place before. Back then, it was it was not at all a thing to play a digital film. So what they did was they had uh, satellite streaming in order to show that film. But that also shows you this was the first film that was entirely shot and edited on consumer level digital equipment. Mm -hmm. And this was only a few months before Festin. And of course, Festin was much more commercially successful and became really phenomenon, especially so through the dogma movement that Thomas Winterberg was really early there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't even until around... 2013, that it was a norm that movie theaters had converted to a digital standard of projection. I believe over 90% of movie theaters in the United States at least were running digitally, which is crazy when we think about how film and analog filmmaking had just been transitioned out virtually and um, put on the back burner. The rules of dogma was a game. It was... It was an ideology, it was politics, it was a provocation, it was arrogance, but it was also playfulness. Maybe we should also just say that the same year in Cannes, there was uh, also The Idiots by Lars von Trier. And I think we were not really able to figure out why Festen is really number one and not The Idiots, because it was also... At the beginning, it was just Lars von Trier and Thomas Winterberg. Mm -hmm. Those two, as you said, I think in like 30 minutes or so, they came up with the vow of chastity and this entire set of rules. And if anyone, it was Lars von Trier because he was on that panel in Paris in 1995. And one would expect him to be the first one to be cited as having produced a dogma film, especially 
you know, it's the same kan. But uh, perhaps, yeah, I'm, he had just finished um, Breaking the Waves, which is a film that's not credited as a dogma film in any sense, of course, but having drawn from the inspiration of some of the filmmaking techniques that Lars von Trier used. Who knows, maybe since it was such a collective, Lars said... <laughs> I'll read and I will do the press conference and you will do the first film. And since you just mentioned uh, Breaking the Waves, also Thomas Winterberg had his uh, debut feature in 1996, so after the dogma, but uh, that was also not a dogma film yet. And so these four filmmakers, the first initial four, they are often referred to as the brethren. <laughs> uh, They produced each one film. So we have the two, uh, Van Trier and Winterberg in 1998. Then we have Søren Krag Jakobsen with uh, Mifune. I don't know how to pronounce mm -hmm. that, uh, which played at the Berlinale in 1999. And then we have Christian Levering, The King is Alive, that played also in Cannes in 2000. So within two years, more or less, these four dogma films that were really the, I suppose, the founding mm -hmm. fathers of the movement And uh, those four also came together in 2001 and made this film D-Day, which was quite an interesting experiment. I don't know if you read up on that, what that is? No, I didn't get the chance. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, that's also part of this in-between cinema and TV, because Festen and uh, other films by Winterberg, they had sort of... Um, there were some compromises made in order to for these films to be granted financing. So Festen, for instance, that had to play after Cannes within three months or so, it had to play in uh, Danish TV, mm. which is also why so quickly around 20% of the Danish population saw that film. And this D-Day film in 2001 was a film that was shot on, I think it was the year of the millennium. On New Year's Eve, those four filmmakers just made, you know, they shot scenes with the established actors that we will talk about later as well. And then they were all simultaneously played on different broadcasts on Danish television. Mm. And you could sort of edit your own film. Mm -hmm. So it basically promoted an active viewing in the sense that you had to some extent control over what you saw at the time. So they mm -hmm. really tried to push the boundaries there mm -hmm. to some extent. No, it sounds very fascinating because when I think of Dogma 95, I think, yes, there are rules, but yes, it's also a game and it's playing a lot with control, playing with storytelling of which, you know, the Danish have such a such a history, just from Hans Christian Andersen to, I don't know, Dreyer and Bergman. I'm the, maybe, okay, Dreyer is Danish, Bergman is Swedish, but <laughs> the Scandinavians in general, which I'm sorry to group you together if you are offended by this, but... um. Just very rich storytelling. Going back to the idea of it as a game and just really democratizing in some sense and making filmmaking perhaps something that can be fun in a different way and more accessible. So to hear you talking about that, the viewing experience is also one that could be manipulated and controlled. Exactly, is which is usually this is theorized. This is one of the aspects that where you can tell apart cinema and theater. So in the theater, there is this always the possibility that you could interfere in the action, right? Mm. But cinema in that sense is really passive. You have to 
take it as it is uh, served or delivered to you. And there is not the reciprocity. There is no no live moment there. There is no interaction between the audience and, and the actors. And there's no sense of that. So this sort of breaks breaks mm -hmm. with that to some extent, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you can interfere. That's interesting. And I'd like to get back to it at another point. I sort of appear democratic, but I'm not. So maybe just before we really get into this. So now we have established some of the context of uh, dogma overall, maybe because it's still conversations. We should talk about a bit about the Cannes that year. This was a Cannes festival where Theo Angelopoulos uh, won for Eternity and a Day and the jury president of that time was Martin Scorsese. A lot of interesting films played this year as well. A lot of memorable ones. Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, for instance, by Terry Gilliam. We have Ho Xiao Xian's uh, Flower of Shanghai, Chaimin Yang's uh, The Whole, Roberto Benigni's Life is Beautiful, and of course, as we mentioned already, uh, The Idiots by Lars von Trier. Also interesting to see that there was no female filmmaker, you know, which uh, has changed to some extent. What did we have this year? Like one third of filmmakers were female at Cannes. So I, yeah. yeah, it's still not it's still not great, but there has been some progress, and that you can see. Uh, it's interesting too because the jury was sprinkled with females. We have Chiara Maestriani, Lena Olin, Winona Ryder, Sigourney Reaver, as well, and uh, Cuban writer Zoe Valdez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's I guess, about fifty-fifty, I think. Yeah, I guess uh, it was rather. I don't know. I think with these juries, I think what people really look at is just uh, the president mm. and all the other people. They they do matter just as faces, but I do think it's always about the prestige of heading the jury. But in any case, and Eliana, could you tell us, you know, there's this interesting story how this film just came to life at all. Like how was Winterberg inspired here? Because one has to say, This is not a story that was derived just, you know, from his mind or from his great ideas. There was, there's quite a fascinating story that is worth recounting here. There's a quite charismatic, youngish Winterberg on YouTube talking about how this story came to him. It came through a friend who had a radio program who advised him to make a film of this. And on that radio program, a young man who identified himself as Alan went on the show and said that he had stood up during a family celebration and announced that he was sexually molested by his father. Winterberg took the essence of that story and he claims that he did not listen to it in its entirety because it was very, it's a very heavy story to listen to. He later made a film and he talked with his lawyers, he talked with the people that he needed to in order to try to make sure that he would be able to secure not being sued, <laughs> I suppose. And eventually the story continues and has many different layers. Winterberg became quite famous for this film. He got a lot of attention for it. And then it became obvious to the man who actually hosted the, the radio show that this was a story on his show. 
it became obvious to other people. People would come up to Winterberg and tell him, oh, I recognize this story. Eventually, the press started looking for this man, Alan, who had told the story, and they found him. And the story really just continues. And Alan had actually made up some parts. But Winterberg tells it in a much better way. This is a big story of appropriation, isn't it? It is a big story of appropriation, which in all of its irony, whatever it means to get at the heart of truth through the Dogma 95 rules, the Dogma 95 manifesto, we can see from this one stripped of the story, the film in this telling of this story behind the film is stripped of its illusions. But that in itself is not the guiding principle that should have led the making of Festin. The story does continue in, and takes many different turns, but it, it's worth listening to. And I think one of the funniest things is rather the fact that one aspect of whatever illusion cinema provides and the idea of potentially stripping a story or a film of its dramaturgy, that there's an impossibility about that, which is very clear from at least the few dogma films that we've seen. I don't know if you would agree. Yeah, I think... Uh... Before I get into that, I just want to very quickly say that uh, so this Alan guy basically took this story from someone else he encountered in the hospital. So this was an appropriation of that story. But with regard to what you just said, yeah, I think that's also really present in this documentary you mentioned earlier in The Purified, where there's mm. this debate about whether by stripping it down to sort of skeleton we hide more mm. the artifice of it or if we get closer to the truth behind it. And I think that's really an ongoing discussion, right? Are you just uh, hiding things more clearly or are you preventing yourself from hiding behind a narrative and all the glamour that is usually associated with film sets and everything? Yeah, I think I... you One know, can talk forever <laughs> about that. Possibly, yeah. I think, but this is really uh, one more thing about Festin compared to The Idiots, for instance, which, as I mentioned, played at the same Cannes Film Festival. Festin made quite a lot of money. I think it had a budget from 1.65 million and it made around 20. Compare that to The Idiots, of course, that is in many ways a much less commercial film and probably much more challenging to audiences but that really made just uh, $7,000 and you you can see that this was probably just I don't know like IFC or Lincoln Center or something and they probably uh, made all the money for that film so it really set up a big movement that film. Mm -hmm. I mean allegedly the idiots also was booed heavily mm -hmm. and i think a well-known film critic mark kermode was thrown out of the screening because he yelled in the uh, in the screening il est merde il est merde and then later <laughs> admitted oh that's not proper french <laughs> even <laughs> and yeah i never understood that in Cannes. you know i think that's very disrespectful and i wonder you have this you have this upper class of people like the supposed upper class of people but then they have the worst manners in the world. So I never quite understood, like, why would you boo an artist who has put quite a lot of effort, quite some time, quite some work and blood and sweat into something? Why would you boo these but people? But it reinforces the fact that they were actually able to achieve something and get a reaction that it's they were true. probably, that they probably wanted. It's true. There was no indifference, to be sure. So, yeah, let's get to the 
meat, as we sometimes say here on the podcast. Let's go to the meat of the story. So we have Festen, Thomas Winterberg's second film. Do you want to just maybe present us with the premise of the film, what happens there? Sure. So there is a celebration for the 60th birthday of the patriarch Helge. He's well-respected, well-known in the community. And during the festivities, his eldest son, Christian... The protagonist. The protagonist. So this is actually very interesting. Sorry, to side note. No, no. But Winterberg tells a lovely little anecdote on the first day of shooting, Ulrich Thompson and... Henning Moritzen, who also was an, an actor in Ingmar Bergman's Rise and Whispers, for instance. So a well-established actor. Mm -hmm. So on the first day of shooting, when both actors introduced themselves, Ulrich Thompson, who plays Christian, said, I am Ulrich Thompson. I am playing the protagonist, Christian. And then Henning Moritzen said, I'm Henning Moritzen. I'm also playing the protagonist, the father. And I think that says so much about this film. Oh, that's interesting. But yes, the eldest son stands up and he delivers a toast which is not a toast, but like the radio show, he's revealing the transgressions of his father in the past. That are? Of sexual molestation of him and his twin sister. The family also is comprised of two other siblings, Michael, who's the youngest, and... Michael. Michael, who's the youngest, and Helen, played by Paprika Steen, who's also credited for helping cast pretty much the majority of the film. Michael, played by Thomas Bo Larsen, who is a frequent collaborator of Winterberg. I mean, he even was in his Oscar-winning, I think, Drunk or Drunk, right? Yeah. Uh, another round uh, that won the Oscars And in he was also featured in Winterberg's student graduate film. Exactly. And in the short films, I think in his debut film as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All these actors you see pop up again and again throughout Thomas Winterberg's career. Uh, same is true for his mentor figure, right, from the Danish film school. And this is maybe interesting for context, just that in the 90s, the Danish film landscape changed quite, quite drastically. I think Three of the major film institutions, I think the museum and the Danish film school, and there was an, another institution that doesn't come to mind. They all merged together into one big institution and that, that came with a lot of changes and people got more and more concerned with just restoration of films and trying to develop or uh, manufacture even sort of new generation of writers and directors uh, in that generation. And of that, I think we should say that Thomas Winterberg was seen as a prodigy, really. That's also, if you just look at it and you see that how young Thomas Winterberg was compared to Lars von Trier and all the others, it strikes you as, you know, quite remarkable. And I think Lars von Trier saw a talent there very early, and this is also why he pushed him into the first row here. Mm -hmm. It's funny how they make almost like as if there was an some... initiation or... Yeah, but also, you know, they joke about how there may have been a uh, malicious intent mm. of uh, Lars von Trier to just see if this works out or not for him, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe to like ruin his reputation even before he started to... <laughs> he, he started off his career, yeah, and then he failed and was so successful. Yes, I believe Winterberg was 28 when he made Festen. Right. So that's like comparable to maybe Damien Chazelle, right, who very early with Whiplash, for instance, had his major shot. It's uh, 
Austin Wells, of course. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to compare them like qualitatively throughout their oeuvre, but for sure you can see like how early he really was uh, with his film. Yeah, so, and that is quite an interesting setup we have there, right? With this entire family at this big hotel, which is sort of the family mansion. Mm -hmm. And we also have next to the family who comes from different countries and so on. We also have to quite a remarkable extent, we have the kitchen there as well. And the kitchen personnel who, especially with Christian, they share uh, a long history because Christian, the I would still claim the protagonist, but of course, I am sure Henning Moritzen might d disagree here. Christian lives in Paris and he is a successful restaurateur. In Paris, he runs two restaurants, so he has this natural link to the chefs there because they know each other from childhood onwards. And it is known that these people in the kitchen also know about what happened in the past. What's really sweet and on display here, I think, is a type of shared solidarity between the upstairs and downstairs. Kim, who is the chef, he's unable to cook unless he's drunk. <laughs> and there are different ways that the camera allows us in on some of the action and the presence of those who work for the hotel provide in, in pushing the story forward. In one particular scene, when the two protagonists have already established, where they, they meet each other in the cellar of the hotel, and it becomes clear through the camera movements that they're being observed. But by whom? That's revealed a little bit later when we discover that the hotel personnel know, because they report back to Kim, the chef, um, what has transpired between Christian and his father, Helge. Okay, so maybe is there something that initially, because I think that's such an energetic film, right? It really radiates energy and it radiates dynamic. So is there something you can maybe tell us about your first viewing experience and why you picked that film in particular? I think it was definitely because of the energy. I saw this film when I was maybe less than 10 years of age, which was probably too young, but at the same time, very different experience from any of the other media that I had consumed. But you know, that's funny because in Denmark, this film has a rating that is 11 and above, whereas in the US, it has an R rating. Oh my. <laughs> I think that's very funny. That is very funny. That just speaks to so many cultural, just sensitivity differences. Right. No, I just remember thinking, I suppose because I grew up in a in a small family, it was very lovely to see a whole entire family on display and then to see the dynamics that they exchange with one another. Each sibling has a very strong personality. The whole entire plot that slowly unravels and the way that it's done is very realistic in a way that's jarring. I mean, the idea of confessing something that you've held as perhaps your own shame or your own humiliation throughout your entire life to a group of people and then for it to be met with oh let's just carry on and go to the next course of the meal it had a big impact on me when i first saw it and how about you yeah i mean as you know i watched it the first time with you together and i just could not resist the energy i saw here that was uh quite amazing and at times really overwhelming. But I have to say this film overtly 
should be so sinister and so just grim, but mm. it's actually such a joy. It's so funny. Uh, even the way the camera moves, I mean, as we know from our vow that we presented at the beginning, it's all handheld camera. Mm -hmm. That means that sometimes you have just have insane camera movements. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's also the camera here serves sort of a narrative function. Mm. Like there's this very funny scene when this ragey brother. What's his name again? Michael. Michael yeah. <laughs> When he complains to his wife or partner that she didn't she didn't pack his shoes mm -hmm. and how could he face his his father who has not even invited him. This takes place a few weeks or months after the funeral of uh, the twin daughter Linda, mm -hmm. who was the twin of Christian, the protagonist. And so Michael he didn't show up. So now he's not even invited to the festivity here. And then he complains about her not having packed his shoes then the camera moves down when he points at his socks mm -hmm. that he says oh i cannot face my father in socks <laughs> and the camera goes down and up again and it's like it's such an interactive ride mm -hmm. this this film it's it's always in movement mm -hmm. yeah, the frenetic activity as you mentioned plays a role both in this is very comedic the scene that you just mentioned But also sometimes it predicts what might happen next, as if we too could be amongst the guests invited to this lovely hotel in the countryside of Denmark, I assume. And we're just watching and eating with them. There are also some other camera angles which take place, which have been interpreted and then look a little bit like surveillance camera right. footage. Um, and they've been interpreted as potentially that the haunting of the absence, the absence of the sister. Yeah. And I think the the first outlines of the script were much more supernatural that the script mm -hmm. ended up being and the realized film at the end. And I think uh, Linda's presence was more and more decreased the more the shoot was going on and the more the editing got on. So there is a lot of uh, footage that you can still see where you can see Linda, mm -hmm. but uh, that was taken out of the film to paradoxically, as Thomas Winterberg claims, uh, to enhance her presence in that mm -hmm. film. And I, th I think that's a lovely theorization here that sometimes to really emphasize a presence, you have to reduce their presence. It's funny that you bring this up about the absence and the presence of the sister, because one of the early working titles for Festin was Blood of the Bourgeoisie. It featured a poster of a ghost that was covered in blood, so one that's very different from the one we have now, and it would indeed have made a very different film. And yeah, so I think what's also fascinating is, and we are greatly indebted here to see Claire Thompson's book on the film, which also is not an everyday occurrence that an entire book is devoted to one film, right? Mm -hmm. But since this is so historical in many respects, this film, I think uh, this deserves it. And you just learn also a lot about the Danish film landscape of the time. There it was suggested, and this goes back to a critic, that this family, the different members, they could be seen as a cartography of Denmark. So you have the Helge who pertains to the ruling class, the establishment. Then you have the mother who's, you know, I think probably a character not talked about too much, but this is very much in line 
with this reading here because there it is suggested uh, that she sort of present uh, represents the silent majority of Denmark that if bad things occur they just try to mm-hmm. uh, not bring it up again not mm-hmm. to create any tension not to create any conflict mm-hmm. then we have um, of course Christian and he's the dissident the expatriate and he's sort of renouncing his citizenship whereas his brother Michael uh, Michael now I'm doing the same thing <laughs> he represents the lower class which is also pronounced through his Copenhagen mm, sociolect or... yeah Soci- okay. exactly mm. yeah and then Helena mm-hmm. and she's the sort of I don't know if you can call her the intellectual that is suggested in the book, but at least she is the cosmopolitan mm-hmm. liberal sister who brings to the table a black person of color, right? And this mm-hmm. also leads to uh, some tension that is very funny, but also very disturbing in the film. Yes. From what you just said, I mean, all I think of is really this uh, Shakespeare line from Hamlet, Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Uh-huh. Yet at the same time, oh, that's good. I see some aspects of Hamlet and some aspects of Macbeth, even though that takes place in Scotland. But I see the mother character who is almost like a like a toned down Lady Macbeth. She is potentially equally guilty of something. Yet it is Christian who spends the time sort of washing his hands or making this gesture as if he too is trying to get something out. But back to the racist aspect of this film. Yes, there was something very interesting in this book that talked about Festin also being, as you said, perhaps like a sociological view of Denmark. And and one particular scene, well, there, there, it, it builds up very well, like the idea of aggression, retaliation. First, we see it when Batukai, who is Helen's boyfriend arrives driven in a taxi by of course thomas winterberg who <laughs> makes a little cameo in his own film which was his way of getting credited by finding that loophole because in the rules the director is not to be credited he arrives and michael greets him greet is really <laughs> a mild way to put it i think he says charlie brown yes And he says, oh, you're at the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And it's not until Helen comes and rescues Batukai that Mikhail understands and is not pleased with the fact that he's still there. And this tension rises throughout the film. And I must say, he's he's just so good, right? He's the really actor, good. Uh, Thomas Bolasen, because yeah. I just believe that, you know, I just believe that he's a racist pig. His his energy is unmatched in this mm-hmm. film. And so this racist aspect comes to a climax at the dinner table, following perhaps the first toast of Christian, where Michael's character, who's already had a little bit of a fumble with Batukai's character, encourages all the guests to sing a racist Danish song, and everyone joins in. Now, a lot has been said about the fact that the extras in this film were not warned as to what Christian's toast would be, in where he condemns his father's... Well, he doesn't really condemn his father's behavior. He rather just announces his father's behavior. And thus, some people have just said, hmm, 
Is it possible that the singing of the racist Danish song was scripted? Or is it something that naturally happened? One can't know, but there is an involvement on the part of the viewer, which this book by C. Claire Thompson highlights, that perhaps if one is a Danish person at the time watching on their TV, because that is how it was broadcasted, they might have found themselves inclined, inclined to sing along or to just recognize this tune, which says quite a lot about. Yeah, and I think that's that's such a fascinating aspect. I think there's this discussion often whether intention matters when it comes to racism, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is, of course, an objective racist action mm -hmm. and there is not. But this really makes you question whether there is a racist intent with these people or if it just... Sometimes those dynamics, those social dynamics, they just... I don't know, they are spurred or initiated through certain rhythms or a melody. And then you think back and hear a song and you don't even realize uh, cognitively mm -hmm. that this is actually, you know, mm -hmm. quite d disturbing text. And mm -hmm. I think the way you are brought up, you just sometimes overlook these things, right? And then you, only if you maybe are uh, pointed at that or if people point at that and then make you reflect on that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is a play here at all, but I think the film leaves that open. And that it definitely leaves it open. I think in another scene with the mother figure, this whole entire idea of intention or something that is so subtle that we cannot accuse this action perhaps of being a racist one or an intentionally racist one comes up. But upon meeting Batakai, the mother with Helen present, essentially says, oh, welcome back. And Helen responds, no, that was another one, <laughs> mom. And it's there so, is, you know, I, I had to laugh so hard. I think it's very funny. And she says this in Danish, so Batukai presumably doesn't understand either. And then the mother <laughs> just says, oh, welcome, Kai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is not his real name. Or the name that he's introduced himself as. Yeah, and it's a it's a um, it's a Danish name or nickname. Yeah, yeah, that I suppose she's more comfortable saying. And later, there's even like Spanish name or something about right? Yes, I think that he's another, called. Yes, yes. And speaking of the mother, still, I think it's you know of her being the like silent majority. There is this pivotal scene when Christian for the first time, and this also okay. Maybe I should get back here first, because mm -hmm. before he reads out his speech, he holds two envelopes to his father, mm -hmm. a red one and a green, no, like a green Gold one and one a yellow and a yellow, one. A, yeah, yellow one and a green one. Yeah. And he asks his father wh which one he picks. Mm -hmm. And it's even, uh, so the father, I think, decides uh, to choose the green one. And there you can even argue this is sort of an unconscious blue or red pill you know from the matrix <laughs> yes. in the sense of do you want to know the mm. truth you know do you want to reveal the truth or not mm -hmm. and of course this predates matrix so in a, in a sense i think that's interesting mm -hmm. and the father of course cannot know what is behind that but in any case so christian oh yeah did you want to say something or to even that? whether anything is behind that because i think that, that is also some strange psychological trap to offer to potentials and then basically there is no potential that was his intention the entire time of course i don't know 
whether there was even yeah and i think i think i read in an interview that even thomas winterberg you know he said he doesn't know what mm. was in the other envelope yeah so in any case so christian reads his letter to all the family it's a huge extended family so mm -hmm. there are also germans and people from all over europe and then the mother's reaction to that is basically that she refers to his childhood when he would play with his imaginary friend yeah. snoot or something so or... she would just try to put all his accusations into question and sort of discredit him and making him not a reliable source of any sort of information mm -hmm. which yeah. is quite you know like that is not so much commented about i think when you talk about this film mm -hmm. the mother no i think the mother character is very interesting to look at because i don't mean to skip ahead but at the end she's the one who's allowed to stay the patriarch somehow gets chased away in a very toned down way but he's asked to leave and he willfully dismisses himself but the mother as if she also is against Helga, just stays, sits, and is allowed to eat the brunch. Maybe we should go back because we have a little bit of a gap to fill in plot-wise. So, going back to the story of Alan, it's quite interesting, Winterberg says, that he had stopped listening to Alan's version of the story, but according to this version, after the announcement, after the first toast was made, by the the son, all the guests left. So in his film, Vinterberg uses a trick, a little plot device in order to keep everyone at the hotel. He gets all the workers from downstairs who work in the kitchen or who are just the service personnel in general for the hotel, and they hide all the guests' car keys. Yeah, it's true. Uh, maybe one of the other pivotal scenes of this film It's perhaps this parallel montage scene, right? When they are uh, in bathrooms and the focus lies here on the water as mm -hmm. a theme because it was in a bathtub, I think, where the twin sister slash daughter committed suicide. And in, you know, the bathroom is here the overall connecting place mm -hmm. of the past and the present. Yeah, I, this is a bit of an inside joke, but... You can always tell an art house film because I always joke that it starts or ends with water or there's always a, some water it's that's true. involved. Uh, who knows? Is it the womb? Is it just the call of nature? Is it just the flow? Something about water that's both tangible and intangible escapes, flows many films, and connects. Yeah, and many films also ending on the beach, right? Or mm -hmm. at the beach. And this parallel that's linked through water, I think really enforces whatever connection that these siblings do have with one another. Even though they live completely different lives, we get the sense, oh, perhaps, I mean, maybe it is in this sense, came from the same source. Yeah, and there is some trickery here when it comes to the dogma manifesto because there are these parallel shots and there's almost a reaction that occurs when I think the letter is found, right? Or is it when the letter is found or when... Michael slips down or when Pia, who is another female character here, who is important for Christian, 
She uh, works at the hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think when she takes a bath, you know, mm-hmm. and she then evokes Linda there in her dying, in a sense. Yeah. And between these scenes that are occurring at the same time, it's as if they are reacting to each other, even though, of course, they are in different rooms. And mm-hmm. this is part of the dogma thing that they cannot be at different locations at the same time. So this is interesting. Mm-hmm. You mean as to say whether they're breaking the rules or do you mean as no, to say... No, they found a just, way, I mm-hmm. think. They found a way to circumvent the rule or like stretch the rules mm-hmm. here to... And also to make that uh, thematic link of water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how the how the children are interconnected. Yes, I'd have to say that my first understanding of Dogma 95 rules was also a bit maybe blurred. And it was only after watching the documentary and seeing some behind the scenes. They had three cameras on set and they had boom operators. But perhaps the idea that what is it specifically? The rule is that no manipulation of the image should happen and the sound of the image should be synced. Exactly. So I believe that... That is the primary rule that is adhered to. But manipulation of the image, suppose if you believe that editing or trimming or cutting different sequences together is manipulation of the image, then arguably they have done something wrong. But I believe we can get more into that too, whether a dogma film is a dogma film. According to the rules. Yeah, and perhaps also to link that thematically, this is one of the themes of the film itself, which is, you know, the breaching of rules or uh, Mm -hmm. sticking to rules. I think there is, you know, the film starts very early with Michael arriving at the hotel and he's told that he is not invited and he cannot stay. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, there we are already familiarized with the rules and the rules they are made by the patriarch Mm -hmm. and later it's interesting it's not really what christian is saying that makes him explode at the end helga it's when he's asking for his wine or water to be filled up Mm -hmm. and no one reacts to that that is when he Mm -hmm. freaks out and i think that's notable right like Mm -hmm. a film that is so formally but also thematically so much concerned with rules and adhering to them it's interesting that this is also the moment where he loses finally Mm -hmm. control where you would have thought oh he would have lost control already like 20 minutes ago. Yeah, because I think also it's really brilliant because the idea of loss of control comes, I suppose, not when someone who you've been belittling and humiliating sexually your entire life is angry at you or is accusing you of things, but it's when the people around you suddenly stop responding to you and stop obeying the natural order. Right. Are there other themes or noteworthy aspects that you want to point out with regard to that film i think there's a lot but at the same time i think it's also a very visceral experience right it's very dynamic it has a lot of humor mm-hmm. which is one of the most subjective things about cinema right humor this is this is very interesting because i have read some things that said that in america initially people viewed this and categorized it under black comedy and winterberg mm-hmm. was actually very opposed to this idea he doesn't like the idea that festen is seen as a black comedy um but that but people, to him that, it was rather a drama or to him i think it is rather a drama oh, even I see. though there are 
funny elements. And he says that the American reception of it is people would laugh the entire time through, perhaps out of awkwardness, perhaps out of just, I don't know, really. But then in Denmark, the reception primarily was they would laugh the first half and then the second half they'd leave and say that they were very moved by the film. Mm -hmm. Which also points to another, I suppose, cultural difference. Thematically, there's so much to talk about. I mean, I do think this film is a visceral one and it's hard for anyone who's listening, if they haven't seen the film, for us to just tear it apart like this. Because for me, there are many aspects of how trauma is treated in this film that I wouldn't say appeal to me, but it's done in such a, in such a way that I think many films fail at doing which is, this is never about Christian getting a specific type of revenge, nor is it about him telling a story and breaking down. It's just about him vocalizing something. There was a very big, um, in, in the process, Ulrich Thompson did a lot of research on victims of incest and had a big argument in ways with Thomas Winterberg about how he should perform the monologue where he announces what his father did to him. And Winterberg wanted him to do it in high spirits, as if this is a man who is getting revenge. And Ulrich Thompson thought that he should do it sort of down, sad, depressed, it's a heavy topic, but later abided by what it was that Winterberg wanted. How did you find the dream sequence? Because it's highly implied too, in this, that Christian and Linda, the deceased sister, had also improper sexual contact, and that Christian might even be to blame for the death of Linda. And Helga knows this, and Helga leverages that over Christian. And this really drives the plot forward, to be honest, when um, Helga accuses Christian of having issues of being someone who was dysfunctional, who had been to, who had had his body pumped full of medication, etc. And just not been there, not been able to pick up the call of his sister, who he claimed to always be there for. And Christian has doubts because, well, he's never received some form of letter, which Helga knows very well, that there is no suicide note. And this drives the plot forward because a suicide note is discovered. And even that very much in in the style of handheld camera and in the style of dynamic filmmaking, right? Yes, in the cheeky way that there is a mixture of realism and illusion in how this the, there's a little bit of a treasure hunt yeah. that's um, orchestrated during the water, parallel water scenes where the middle sister... Helen, the, the only sister, looks for some clues and they play a kind of hot-cold game that they used to play, but that she plays with the receptionist. Yeah, and um, uh, so interestingly, there are these arrows painted on the wall. And when this scene was shot, the actors were not told where these arrows were. So there's even this sort of improvisational notion present in this scene that the actors themselves had to find the clues. Oh, how did you find the dream sequence? Ah, yeah. So <laughs> back to the dream sequence. It's uh, also one of these scenes where they swing for the fences to be within the limits of the dogma 
It's true. Set of rules, right? Because I think the argument that is made in this book by C. Claire Thompson is that due to, I think, is it the ticking clock or something that, or is the it the telephone. ringing phone? Yeah, right. the telephone. Mm -hmm. So we hear this as still, you know, pertaining to what we conceive of as reality, while Christian imagines his sister Linda in his dreams. And the sister also weirdly merges with this woman, Pia, mm -hmm. who is sort of the closest, it seems, to what could be a partner mm -hmm. for him. And uh, in many instances, Christian is referred to as impotent in the reception of this film. Mm -hmm. And it is even here. I mean, for a reason, right? Because we see how Pia is trying to initiate contact with him and he's not really uh, receptive to that. Mm -hmm. But so Pia merges with Linda, which, you know, at the end, it is Christian who asks Pia if she wants to go to Paris with him mm -hmm. to go back. And she agrees immediately. So what does it tell us that Pia merges with Linda <laughs> So supposedly the woman that in his dream resembles the dead mm -hmm. sister with whom he had allegedly mm -hmm. uh, incestuous contact. I thought it was very beautiful, the way that the dream sequence was done, because we have Christian who believes potentially, you know, that his sister was his the greatest love in some sense. There's a very strong connection. There's no other word, I guess, than right. connection that they must have shared being the victims to their father's behavior. And in the similar way that we talked in the previous episode that Bob Fosse is seduced by a woman into the afterlife, to me this was also the appearance of the dead sister. It was almost as if she was also trying to seduce Christian into the afterlife. And oh, Christian yeah, says, no. Uh, says, says, is it time? And Linda says, no, it's not time. And then we start to hear the telephone and then we start to see reality again. And right next to him is Pia, fallen asleep, fully clothed on the bed. And this was, I don't know, it's just that that got me because of the idea of the impossible meetings always get me and just what it is that he might actually desire and that being impossible and out of reach. Yeah. But and uh, in keeping with the dogma rules so this uh, ringing of the telephone that mm -hmm. sort of binds him to the reality and uh, mm -hmm. Even temporality, uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter so much because we all know these instances when we dream something, but our dream is affected by our surroundings, mm -hmm. be it something like temperature or sound or something, mm -hmm. or even smell, right? So sometimes you smell something in your dream. Mm -hmm. This is very, very mundane. It's just what you actually are perceiving in that moment. Yeah. And just working on the theme of family, I mean, who's on the telephone? It's Helena basically saying Michael can't be found. Michael has gone missing. So I love that little bit of, okay, the sister who is dead is left in the unconscious, is left in the afterworld, but there still are other siblings who need his presence mm -hmm. as well. Are there other things you would still like to discuss? I think this is a film that one should see in their life. I was very happy to get to see it again and to see it on quite a few different occasions because there's something raw and a frenetic, energetic, yet somewhat cathartic for me. I think um, there's something that's not too far from mythology 
or or just classic literature. You can interpret it with Freudian psychoanalysis as well, I suppose. And just in terms of getting energized by the whole entire movement, that in itself is another <laughs> another thing which keeps giving. Yeah, and uh, this really evokes this first sentence of Anna Karenina, right? Where it says mm. that every family is sad in their own way or something. Mm -hmm. And you also, I mean, you're in very good company here. Ingmar Bergman, upon seeing this, he called this one of the best films he's seen. And last week with Fosse, mm -hmm. we had... Was it Kubrick saying that this oh, is yes. one of his <laughs> best films or something? And now we have another grand figure of cinema, Ingmar Bergman, uh, still good and well at the time, saying this is one of the best films he's seen. Yeah, and Festin had such a huge influence uh, on cinema, but also on the broader landscape of audiovisual media. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a stage adaptation that started out in Germany, mm -hmm. then took over Europe and even made it to Broadway <laughs> <laughs> as as the first Danish play ever ever there, as far as people can say. Mm -hmm. And also something some people might not be aware of, because why would they? It's such a small thing. But in, in Germany, you could still see uh, the influence there as well. There is this filmmaker called uh, Jakob Lass, who helped Franz Rogowski to prominence because in his first two films, uh, Franz Rogowski had his first film roles. Uh, and this Jakob Lass, he was part of the Fogma movement in Germany. It stands for Fuck Dogma. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Which seems very silly because if you read that manifesto, mm -hmm. It basically reads very similar to Dogma and I wonder, you know, it doesn't seem to be so removed from uh, its original inspiration. But anyway, so you, you can see even around 15 years later or so, it still drove people to like think about that. And in 2010, which is something I only found out recently, there was a sequel to Festen that played at the Vienna Burgtheater. <laughs> it was a very prestigious uh, theater in, in Austria. And there... Written uh, by Winterberg. Written and I think directed by Winterberg. Oh, uh, mm. he, he said often when he was interviewed about that, I think he was about turning 40 or so. And he said, uh, Denmark is not really a landscape for artists. You know, they always think too small for him they always think about their daily routines and everything and that is something that he could not really identify with and he said in order to juvenile himself and in order to make him still think and not get into these routines of you know creating mm -hmm. he had to do something new so that was first time i think that he was at the big stage <laughs> directing and writing for the big stage so this was a sequel to festin oh my what and happens yeah, this is quite fascinating. I mean, if I ask, you know, what would you think would happen in a Festin sequel? Because when I read that first, before I knew the premise, I thought, okay, what could you do? Like, it seems oh my goodness, so much like an is... end point to the story. Well, I'd say family is an institution, right? So we still have the family going strong, but maybe superficially strong. I don't know if there would be generational. Oh, I think, okay, so... I see a funeral. Very good. It's called the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it must be probably the funeral of this this protagonist, Helga. Oh, yeah. 
Very good. But that's all I can possibly say because I feel this is this is very much in line with just the reality of mundane traumas of life just simply not you know even if someone in your family is a horrible person once they're gone it's very difficult to cope with that so i can i can see a theater piece being made with the three children who are still remaining and the wife perhaps yeah. trying to manage how to navigate that and here you can see uh Script writing is not difficult at all. Everyone can do it. You just oh, did gosh. it live here on <laughs> oh, the record. And yeah, it's true. That happens. And uh, the family comes together apparently mm. for the first time since the events of the film uh, for the funeral of Helge. Mm. And the big twist here is that Christian reveals that he abused the son of his brother, Michael. So, mm -hmm. so and this is sort of a story about the circle you know like mm -hmm. a vicious circle yeah. or mm -hmm. like harm begets harm yeah. and pain begets pain sin begets sin <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so just i think it's somewhat brave right because if we think of christian we think of him primarily as a victim uh at least i would i would think so I do think it's somewhat brave and I think it's very much in line with Lars von Trier and Thomas Winterberg finding ways still to provoke because on the one hand, this plot that you just explained to me is one that is predictable, but also one that mainstream audiences do and don't want to see or maybe do and don't want to admit. I think there is also a, an argument to be made that incest and sexual abuse have become somewhat mainstream topics. I don't really want to talk about that, <laughs> even though I just brought it up. But what is there that can still shock? And how can we then turn these stories or give it the proper platform to discuss that type? And I think it must be done in some art form. Maybe just to wrap this up here we should just see this film in context of thomas winterberg's overall filmography i think the one name we weirdly haven't mentioned even though he's so important to his filmmaking is uh, morgens rukov who was an early mentor of his at film school and later on they i think they co-wrote the first three films together rukov a big institution in denmark helped a lot of aspiring filmmakers to create their first films. He was a consultant for uh, Lars von Trier's first uh, film, The Element of Crime, in 1984, quite early. And with him, he wrote the next film as well. It's called It's All About Love. This is so so strange, right? But then again, maybe it's not so strange. Uh, following five years after Festin and What happened and would happen again and again with Thomas Winterberg's career is that this would be measured against the Festen, mm. uh, the Festen aesthetics, the Festen success. People would see it and compare it inevitably to Festen and see that it was not Festen. <laughs> But a quite remarkable cast, one has to say, um, English language as well, meaning that, oh, Winterberg clearly wanted to go for something else here, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Claire Danes, Sean Penn. And I believe Winterberg also is quite fond of this film. Right. With, I haven't seen it yet, but it was not well received. Certainly not. And his next one wasn't either. It's called uh, Dear Wendy. 
written by Lars von Trier mm -hmm. and set in West Virginia. I think it's in a way a film that seems very logical from a European standpoint because it's about gun violence in the United States and it's called Dear Wendy and I think Wendy is the gun <laughs> in, mm -hmm. in that film. Yeah, but I would really like to see that at some point too. I think the next big success for him was Submarino in 2010. So one can see, you know, there was 12 years till his next uh, acclaimed film, critically, that played at the Berlinale. And in 2012, he directed The Hunt, which actually was well-received. Yeah, that's interesting in the sense that this was also inspired by mm -hmm. a story he was... It's it's true that he... But you'd have to... Rem oh, just he, he said he knows people where children... The basic promise of the hunt is that there's a kindergarten teacher who is accused of molesting his children in the kindergarten. And this is very early made clear. This is not the case. So mm -hmm. it's a... It's a story about a witch hunt, and he says that he has heard about these things in his own friend circle, whether friends or not. So it's interesting how he sometimes takes these stories and then makes it his films. It almost sounds like the inverse to Festin in some sense. Right. But that's true. He also did, oh, was it in 2003, four, five? Far from the Madding Crowd. Yeah. An adaptation of Thomas Hardy novel of the same name. Starring Carrie Mulligan and Michael Sheen. Yeah, I think there was also a part of maybe trying to build an international profile, mm. I suppose, right? I mean, all these English language films afterwards, it is remarkable. Yeah, and of course, dear listener, look at this poster for Kursk. It's, it's a film from 2018 based on true events. It's about a submarine disaster. And I mean, it has a quite a remarkable cast among them, the essay too. But just look at this poster and I think you have an idea what this film is. I, I have not seen that film, but if I see this poster, I feel like I've seen that film already. It looks absolutely terrible and I don't know how in 2018 such I'm just talking about the poster here, okay, but how such a poster could still be created. But in any case, then came COVID in 2020, and that meant that Cannes for the first time since the 1960s was cancelled. There was a small list of Cannes films that was released digitally with the Cannes logo, so they could technically be considered Cannes films, and that is where another round came about. And I remember that so well because... Back at the time, it was, you know, it was such an uncertain time where no one knew, is it safe to go to the theaters? Many people said it was because of the air conditioning there and uh, how like the mm -hmm. air circulation, but many people were afraid to go to the cinema. That's also why Christopher Nolan's Tenet, that was part of the reason why that film rather bombed at the box office. But this another round, you know, there was literally, I remember there was in the theater for the entire year because there were, <laughs> there were no movies at the time. And uh, this ended up winning Deberg his first Oscar as uh, Best Foreign Language Film. I think he was also uh, nominated for Best Director for that film. Yeah, in any case. And Cesar as well for the film or was that for another film? It's highly possible. I was not a fan at all of that film. I think Mats Mikkelsen teaming up with him again after The Hunt. That is all nice and well. But this film, I don't know. I didn't see the point really. <laughs> 
But uh, of course, it has this final scene that is, I think, memed a lot on the internet where Mats is just dancing around, having fun. I didn't see the film, but I know the final scene <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know the song. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have <laughs> had this experience. But in any case, uh, it still seems because I didn't find any contradictory sources on the internet that they are still working on U.S. remake starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Mats Mikkels. This is interesting because now I feel like we've gone from hypocrisy at Cannes to potentially internal, not hypocrisy, that's a bit rough to say. That's just but Hollywood. It's, yeah, it's interesting to see some of these directors working in television. Right. and uh, <laughs> Even though some of their emerging work was also in television as well. Yeah, like uh, Lars von Trier, yeah, right? Yes. And uh, we have the same now with uh, Thomas Winterberg, who this year he has he's going to release his first TV series. It's a miniseries called Families Like Ours. We can look forward to that, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose this is where we end, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much where we end. There is a wealth of information on Dogma 95 and Thomas Winterberg is always very enthusiastic to talk about Festin because I think it was in some sense the highlight of his career and there's a lot online to look at if you want to and there's even a criterion commentary that he personally did 10 years following the film of Festin and and finally in that spirit I thought it'd be a little fun to mention something else that happened in 1995 on the 100th anniversary of cinema or the birthday of the first footage that the Lumiere brothers shot, which was on March 19th, 1895, which iconically featured a group of factory workers exiting the Lumiere factory in Lyon. There are three versions jokingly referred to as the one with one horse, the one with two horses, and the one with no horses. And this footage was then screened three days later on March 22nd, privately, for the first time, because the box that they used, which is called a cinematograph, functioned as a camera and as a projector. And the reason why the Lumiere brothers are so well known is because they invented a technology that allowed to feed the film more effectively through using a method that's quite similar to the way that a sewing machine works. So, flash forward 100 years, and the French producer and filmmaker Anandre invited around 40 international filmmakers to make a film using the Lumière Brothers' original setup with the cinemagraph and uh, the hand-cranked box in order to that would circulate the film stock. And so filmmakers from David Lynch, Abbas Kiarostami, Michael Haneke, Jiang Yimou, Spike Lee, Vin Wenders, James Ivory, etc. were invited to make a short film with three constraints, or three rules. One, that it be no longer than 52 seconds. Two, that there'd be no synchronized sound. And three, that they would take no more than three takes. It's a very cute activity, but also someone somewhat rather different from the outlandish and revolutionary dogma rules. One that returns to the basics and the real physicality of film and, and the frustration that goes with developing film and the origin, rather, uh, and the other that throws you into the digital world. And 
and reignites for anyone out there who's an aspiring filmmaker or just a DIY attitude towards what is it that we are actually getting to. Perhaps one can embody the spirit of Dogma 95 or create Fogme <laughs> or <laughs> other versions of manifestos because sometimes there's a, there's a loveliness, which also seems to be a recurring theme of just an imposed restriction or a game that turns into a challenge that might be something that turns into something else. Yeah, but now you sort of provoke me to ask, is that sad to you? Like you just basically said that this is his peak and I think it's probably true. And he even acknowledged that himself to some extent. He said it was a blessing, but even more so a curse for his career that this high acclaim came so early and then he never quite found a way to match that later. And that, is that sad to you? Is that because uh, that's not how you would I think want your career trajectory to... I think I, I have mixed feelings about mm -hmm. that. I think there are many filmmakers that I've heard of and I cannot name them right now, but who just have a very complex, as I suppose everyone in the world just might complex relationship with the idea of success. Artists have a complex relationship with the idea of success. I know there's one filmmaker who I will not be able to name, who I've heard basically them say through another person <laughs> who told me that they had reached the peak very early and they felt nothing. Is that it? Mm -hmm. And then they felt that they could have been chasing it until they were 80 or 90, and then only to realize that once you sort of achieve whatever success it is that you are supposed to achieve in your life, it might not give you the thing that you wanted. So I suppose it's all subjective, and each person has their own idea of what success means to them. I think it's very complicated. I don't think it's necessarily sad, but perhaps the blessing in it is to realize or to try to stay more grounded, if one can whether they achieve success early and young, a little bit later, or a sprinkle of success here and there, or how it is that they interpret their success. I don't know. That's a how very, I... A very diplomatic answer, but <laughs> I'll take it as such. And before I reveal what the next film is that we're going to see... I am on the tip of my seat. <laughs> in keeping with our tradition here, just as a reminder that every time we record this, the other person is to choose the next film. Uh, and this always comes as a surprise live on the record here. But before I do that, I just want to announce that we will switch to bi-weekly podcasts just because... Twice a week? Uh, <laughs> bi-weekly every other week. That is what I mean here. Uh, I know that can <laughs> lead to confusion. Just because it's very research heavy, we try to pack it as much as we can with information. And I hope you can appreciate that. So the film I pick for our next episode is going to be Valeskia Grisebach's Western. I don't know. Have you heard of that film? No, I haven't heard of that film. Okay, so that's all Valesk the greater. Say it again. Uh, Valeska Grisebach. Western is really mm, fitting here. It's But it's a European Western. It's an... <laughs> It's set in uh, it's set in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. It's about the divided Europe. It's taking the genre but making something new. It's also a bit like it has these post-colonialist uh, implications that I will be happy to 
kind of decipher with you and maybe make something out of that. I think that's a film that has a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, so we'll leave it at that. And I want to thank you for doing this with me still. Thank you for doing it with me too, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, so as you see, we still haven't lost motivation and I think we keep rolling. We will keep rolling. So see you then. Ciao.